Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 75, Radiation Shielding. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So if you're familiar with us, you may have heard us talk about radiation before. We've talked about the effects on living organisms from Dr. Zarana Patel on episode 57. And we've had Dr. Steve Johnson tell us more about the physics and the day-to-day operations on the space station dealing with radiation and space weather on episode 64. But today we're learning once again about Orion and how the spacecraft is built to withstand the radiation environment of deep space from Matt Lemke. He's the Orion Avionics Power and Software Deputy Manager here at the Johnson Space Center. He understands how Orion is radiation hardened, so the systems inside can withstand the harsh environment of space. The key word here is redundancy. So with no further delay, let's jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Matt Lemke. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast today to talk about radiation shielding on Orion, the deep space uh, spacecraft that we have here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. All right, so we've we've talked about radiation in general before on the podcast. We've talked about how it affects the human body. We've talked about the physics of it, space weather, why we have to be concerned about it in the first place, but not specifically how it affects spacecraft. And this is an interesting one because Orion is going to go deeper into space and it's going to pass through the Van Allen radiation belt. And there's a lot of concerns when it comes to traveling in deep space, specifically when it comes to radiation. So why don't we just kind of start off there? Radiation, what is it? Why do we have to be concerned about it? Okay, so the radiation comes from the sun. Okay. And so you probably heard that in your space physics lecture, and <laughs> they probably did a better job than I will. <laughs> but you've got a couple different sources of it, uh, different types of radiation. So you have this Van Allen belt you mentioned, and we mm-hmm. have a magnetic field around the Earth. And that traps a lot of protons and you know, that size of particle. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've been used to dealing with for so many years. Space station, space shuttle, we got really good about how to work in the proton environment that's there. So there's real good ways to test for it, see what our equipment's gonna do, make sure we can recover. Mm-hmm. But now as we go out beyond and through the Van Allen belt and into deep space, we have to start worrying about solar flares and galactic cosmic rays. Mm-hmm. And these things that have a lot more energy and can come into the electronics and corrupt them. And so that's what we're really worried about versus the effects to the human is what's the effect to the computer. Yeah. And so a, a radiation, a proton, a, a, a galactic cosmic ray, uh-huh. something like that can come in and it'll change a one to a zero in your electronics. Ooh. So your computer thought, hey, I was working wrong. I'm doing my instructions one at a time, executing my software, and suddenly the data is wrong or the software program has been corrupted by changing a zero to a one or vice versa. And so we have to build systems that can handle that. Okay. Uh, you know what's going to happen. Uh, radiation's out there. It's statistical whether or not you get hit. Mm-hmm. And so we, we design systems that can tolerate those bit flips. Yeah. So, I mean, just besides the human element, now we're talking about us- radiation. When it comes to being concerned about what radiation is going to do to a spacecraft, 
corrupting how it works. That's right. really the concern. That's the concern. And that's a big concern. Right. And so on Orion, if you think about it, the computers control almost everything. Yeah. The life support system, the communications, the um, propulsion system, navigation. So everything is controlled by the computer. Mm-hmm. And so when the computer malfunctions, you have a problem. Hmm. And actually, sometimes it's good when it really malfunctions bad because then you know you haven't, right? You have your Windows machine and you get the blue screen of death. Well, at least you know something <laughs> happened and you can reboot it and do something. Okay. So that's one type of error we can have. The other type of error is it just corrupts the data. So you thought you were getting, you know, a readout comes and it's, it says it's 15 whatever units and that's a wrong number now because a bit got flipped. Huh. So it, it can mislead you and it can just corrupt it and make it stop working. Huh. So when it comes to understanding these problems and knowing kind of trying to understand what you have to do to fix it my my first thought comes for detecting it how do you know that you have a wrong number how do you know that the data that you're getting is in fact wrong and has been affected by radiation right that's that's step one (laughs) and so we have a flight computer okay and we actually have four flight computers. We can get into why we have four, because it's due to radiation. Mm. But even within one flight computer, it's really two microprocessors running together. <laughs> and so each microprocessor is executing the same code, and then it compares its outputs, and they should be identical. <laughs> so one nice thing about radiation is it's not like vibration that affects the whole spacecraft at once. It's a you know very minuscule particle or a wave. I'm not even sure what the right physics term is. <laughs> but it comes through and it only hits one thing, right? It's gonna hit okay. one piece of silicon, one transistor at a time, and mess it up. Huh. And so the chances of the same piece of radiation going through both of these processors at the same time and corrupting the same bit so that when the two processors compare their answers that they're identical, Yeah. That's just really, we, we call that inconsequential. It's not going to happen. Okay. So if one of them gets an upset, the other one doesn't, it compares its answer, and then we do what we call fail silent. We get a miscompare, and we say, something's wrong, fail silent, I'm not going to do anything more. Hmm. And then you depend on the other computers to take over for you. Ah. And now when that happens, you can reset that computer and get going again. Okay. And so that's a key to us, is being able to reset the computer and go again. So when radiation affects electronics, you can have a few different effects. One is it just sort of degrades performance a little bit. It doesn't change a one to a zero, but over time. So if you're doing a long, you know, 10-year mission to Jupiter with heavy radiation, mm-hmm. your parts may degrade and fail. Yeah. We're not really worried about on that Orion. We're worried about those bit flips. Hmm. And when the bit flips, it can be a... Uh, just a momentary error, it flips and then it comes back and it's correct. Or it can be permanent, like I burned out that transistor and it's never gonna work again. Uh. And so that's how we do our radiation testing is to make sure that the failure modes in the electronics we fly are those that can be reset by a power cycle. Hmm. If it's gonna burn something up, we reject that piece of hardware and we look for a different implementation so we don't have those problems. So everything we're talking about is something you can fix with a power cycle, worst case. Wow. So to defend against radiation, you won't put a system on Orion that has the potential to burn out due to radiation. Right. Or at least we won't put it on Orion in a flight-critical 
location, right? Okay. Our you flight computer, our propulsion system, yeah. our life support system. Um, we're going to fly some laptops for crew use. Okay. Email, video conferencing, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Those might burn up, and we'll just accept that risk. Okay. But not on our flight computer, not on the critical hardware that's going to fly the spacecraft. Yeah, that's where you need those redundancies. The computer's checking computers. Right. And then backup computers to check those computers. Right. Okay, I see that. And that's actually why we have four computers. Okay. We looked at the environment in space. We looked at um, solar flares, solar particle events. We looked at the Van Allen belt. Mm -hmm. We looked at how much radiation there is, and we predict what our upset rate is. Hmm. To buy electronics that doesn't upset, you know, it's designed for radiation, extremely expensive. Yeah. Right? If we built our spacecraft that way, it would be using technology that was very old. It wouldn't be very capable. Hmm. So we have to find that right balance between how often it upsets, how bad it upsets, and what we can afford. So our flight computers, um, when we predict it, worst case, there's a one in three chance during a mission that a flight computer can mess up. So that's a pretty high. That's significant. That's significant. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so if what happens if that happens? Okay. It upsets. It takes about 22 seconds to reboot and be going again. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one in three chance that a computer will fail and takes 22 seconds to recover. So we have a backup computer. We put a second one on. And then you look at what is the chances of both of those computers getting an independent radiation hit during the same 22-second window, right? Because if one goes down but the other one's flying, you're good. Yeah. The problem is if both of them go down. Right. So we looked at that, and the chances were 1 in 89. Hmm. That both could, in the worst-case radiation environment, 1 in 89 it could go down. Mm -hmm. We said that's still not good enough. Huh. So we had three computers. We said that wasn't quite good enough. We had four computers, and you say there's a one in 150,000 chance that all four could go down in the same 22-second window. And we finally said, okay, that's that, how many flight computers we're going to fly. Okay. And that's, once again, worst case. Yeah. What we really expect is that to be more like one in a million missions that could really happen. Right. Still, I mean, wow, that's... That's a big buffer. <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, but but the logic that you said is critical, though. It's it's these are that's the this is the thing that's flying you. You know, right. you don't want that thing to go down. So it comes to it sounds like it's it's a team coming together and assessing what they're comfortable with and the comfort level, considering cost, considering redundancy. It came down to four. It came down to four. Okay. And then that still wasn't good enough. Wait, really? So we have a backup flight system. So those first four computers are all doing the exact same software, um, flying the vehicle. And then you worry, in addition to radiation, what if you had a common cause software failure? So there was a bug in your code that you didn't catch in ground testing that could cause all four to go down at once. We have a whole nother computer that does backup flight software. So written separately wouldn't have those same flaws. Huh. So we really have those four plus another one in the case of a radiation event to keep us safe. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think I would feel pretty safe flying on that thing. And that's the key. And yeah. what we use is, like you say, we balance all those different parameters, and radiation is just one parameter we worry about, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we manage the whole spacecraft based on a, a loss of crew probability. Hmm. We have a requirement that says we want one in 240 missions is, is our chance of actually losing the crew due to something we know about. 
whether it be the parachutes going out, radiation hitting the vehicle, whatever. So when we accumulate all that risk, mm -hmm. we want to minimize that loss of crew probability. Mm -hmm. And that's what we use to drive where we put our money, where we put our effort onto the vehicle. Okay. And fortunately, radiation is something we can do something about, right? We can yeah. add redundancy. Right. We can do all of that. And so right now, radiation is not one of those top program drivers to the risk of losing a crew. Huh. Because we could, there's something we can do about it. Yeah. You know, a heat shield, you have one. Right. The parachutes, you have many but three main ones yeah and you can lose one of those and still land safely right but you can't lose two so so some of those things we want to be the ones that drive the things we can't do anything about we want them to drive our risk mm -hmm. not things we can do something about yeah because you have these redundancies because you honestly don't know when radiation is going to hit exactly that computer right and which one and how many right wow okay so that's um when it comes to radiation shielding, the way that you're shielding the spacecraft is through redundancy. That's really... I've never thought of it that way before. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what really shielding means. But that's how we handle yeah. the probability of the radiation happening. Okay. It's through redundancy. Um, shielding is very difficult. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, space station has, you know, a certain amount of aluminum on it. Orion has, you know, aluminum, titanium, some back shells. But these particles are so energetic, hmm. they're just going to go through. Mm -hmm. So we don't get a lot of physical shielding right. from anything like that. You know, if you had a spacecraft that was surrounded by a foot of water, like a water bladder, mm -hmm. that would really help reduce your radiation risk. Yeah. Kind of heavy and not very practical. Right. Yeah. Um, That's a lot of water. Right. So basically, we do do what you said, is, is we make sure our redundancy is there mm -hmm. in order to accomplish a mission safely. So that's... Um when it comes to radiation, we, you know, we're talking a lot about software and the computers that are controlling. What else can radiation affect on Orion? What else can it affect? Can it can it blast through some of the materials themselves? Can it can it burn out wires? Can it affect the power source? Can it do any of that? Yeah, radiation can affect anything. But remember, these okay. are extremely small particles. Yeah. So it's not like a bullet blasting through something yeah it's at the atomic level right and so it really doesn't affect a piece of wire yeah right so so even it if it through. does this is not something that you need to worry about when you're designing the spacecraft right we don't worry about that piece of it yeah um, that's where you get into some of the more long-term effects of radiation of of where it just slowly degrades hmm. right so it it hits this molecule and and throws it out of the how it's supposed to operate then it hits another one and eventually your transistors just start not working right uh. so there, that's the time duration aspect to radiation okay which on you know this particular mission we don't have to worry about yeah you know a mars vehicle something that's going to be out there maybe for a couple of years we'll have to start worrying about what we call total dose effects right yeah You'll have to watch those computers pretty carefully, right? Cause watch those computers. And, and really, it's not even com just computers. That's what we've emphasized so far. Sure. But your radio. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really a computer these days, right? It's all digital. <laughs> your displays are digital. Yeah. The life support, the, you know, the, the controllers for the pumps and the fans, those are all digital. So all of those also have the opportunity to be affected. Huh. Okay. Um, I'm thinking about testing. You know, you're, you're talking about, you're, you're thinking what could happen, you have these redundancies. Do you have some sort of, 
I'm imagining a radiation room where you put the computers in and you start blasting away and let's see what happens and let's see if the computers can still run with all this radiation happening. Right. Yeah. So the, the best way to do that is to put it in space and test it. There you go. <laughs> because you need these very, very energetic particles. Oh, so we try yeah. and do the best we can on Earth. We'd go to um, things like Texas A&M University has a cyclotron hmm. where it can shoot heavy ions at you. Okay. And you can control which heavy ions it shoots and how many it shoots per unit time. But they don't have the same energy as what you can get from the sun. Yeah. And so they don't have the ability to penetrate like all the way through your computer. Mm -hmm. And the beams are very small. So it's not possible to take your whole flight computer and put it in a radiation chamber or a radiation beam and get a test all at once. We have mm -hmm. to go to space for that. But what we can do is test each individual component. Mm -hmm. So we can test the processor chip and the memory chip. We take the lids off, we expose the inner silicon to the radiation beam, and then we, we're running test software that looks for errors. Okay. Right, and so that's how we know if a part burns up, right? We put in the radiation beam and it stops working forever, <sighs> and a power cycle doesn't fix it, we know this is not a part we want to fly. Yep, don't use that one. We put in a beam and it does nothing but upset constantly, also not good. Right. So we find the, the right mix between what parts are available, how often they upset. Hmm. And then our, our radiation physics people take the cross section of the beam, the cross section of the part, how often it upsets, and they give us an on-orbit prediction for what's going to happen. Okay. So... I guess really what you're looking forward to now is EM-1, the first flight of uh, the Orion out towards the moon, around the moon, right? That's right. where it's really going to hit some of that those high-energy radiation that you're talking about. Right. When we flew EFT-1, the mm -hmm. uh, flight test, yeah. we actually went up 3,000 miles. So we went out through the Van Allen radiation belts and back in. Ah. So that was a good first test. How of, do. of how we did radiation, and we did very well. Okay. That was a very short mission, yeah. you know, uh, three and a half, four hours long. Yeah. Uh, but it did get up through the belts. We didn't have upsets. We didn't see that. But that's more of a statistical thing, right? Hmm. It, it could have happened. could have happened multiple times, and we would have said our models are still good. Hmm. Um, so now we start talking about a mission to the moon, yeah. you know, 14 to 40 days, that sort of duration, and your chances go up right. of, of having these events happen. Okay. So that's, yeah, that'll reveal a lot on how these this avionics software is. Right. Um, can we, when I'm thinking about a spacecraft, you know, we're talking about it going to the moon, right? Um, I'm imagining, especially when it comes to so software and, and processing capability, we've come a long way in that field when it comes to um, the last time we took a human-rated vehicle to the moon, and that was the Apollo capsule, right? Right. What are some of the differences there? It's, it's really about computer control of the vehicle. Okay. So when Apollo went, things like the life support system were not computer controlled. Hmm. Those were all, we call them analog controls. Analog. They were just, uh, you know, thermostats and, and, and different kinds of electronics to control each individual subsystem. Hmm. The difficulty with that is when you find a problem, you want it to operate differently, there's no easy way to fix it, right? You have to redesign the hardware, rebuild it, retest it. So there's a big advantage to making the spacecraft lighter, more capable, um, easier to change, and easier to maintain, is to let the computers run everything. And now when you find a flaw, all you have to do is change a few lines of code. And I say all you have to do, you've got to <laughs> test it, you've got to make sure it works. Sure. But 
you can do it without affecting the hardware and you can do it on a much more efficient schedule. Okay. Yeah. Right. So we've definitely come a long way in that. Department. We've come a long way, and <laughs> it, it then gives you flexibility for how you want to operate your spacecraft. Too, okay. Right. So now you can do things you never were able to do before. You can uh, go anywhere. You know, Orion's going to be able to go anywhere around the moon and land back anywhere on Earth, versus Apollo had a very tight corridor of where it could go. So we have a lot more capability, a lot more changes we can make. Yeah. Wow. Um, one of the things I'm thinking of uh, is is thinking about the Apollo missions is how short they were. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you're only talking about a couple days. Um, but now with Orion, after the first couple test missions, EM1, EM2, we're talking about a gateway around the moon. We're mm -hmm. talking about long duration habit. You know. Um, stay and, and, and sustainability uh, around the moon. That requires length of time, and that was one of the things you touched on. So um, how do these uh, tests for radiation and redundancies um, test out over time? Is that something that we still need to discover? We, we include that in all our calculations, ah. right? So the longer you go, if I tell you there's a one in 10 chance of getting an upset today, Yeah and tomorrow and the next day, as you add up the days, your probability goes up that something will happen. Okay. And so the duration, since we're not worried about total um, ionizing dose effects, we're not gonna be there that long. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of, it's more and more likely you're gonna see events the longer you're there. Of course. Right, and the other risk you take is solar flares, right? They're infrequent. When they go, they may not come and get you. They may go some different direction. Um, we have some prediction capability on solar flares and some warning. So, you know, you wouldn't launch a spacecraft knowing a solar flare was on the way. Yeah. But you start extending the length of the mission and you start increasing your chance of getting a solar flare while you're there. Huh. And so, um, you know, that's, that's sort of our driving case. That's what makes our worst case radiation prediction is we're depending on a twice the worst case solar flare we've ever recorded. <laughs> so back in 1989, there was one. They recorded its magnitude. It's the biggest we've seen. We say, well, what happens if it's twice as big? That's what we're designing for. Wow. Now, we don't want one of those to hit. No. Right? <laughs> and from your, uh, when you were talking about the effects on humans, you don't want that to hit. Definitely not. Right? So there is a place inside of Orion. I don't know if you talked about it before, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the most shielded place. Mm -hmm. Even though the aluminum doesn't do a lot, the crew can get into the most shielded place. And while they're stuck in there, you'd like your computers to keep working. Oh, of course, of course. Right. Yeah, because even if they do survive, you don't want, you still want to be able to fly home. <laughs> That's exactly right. Very, very important. Now we're talking about these redundancies. We're talking about um, being out in the moon for longer periods of time and being able to deal with that over time. I'm thinking about just besides the um, the technical component, the, the computer component, um, just sustaining the vehicle, the power. Uh, is that something we have to be concerned about with radiation? Or actually, why don't we just back up even further? How does that even work? So we have batteries. Okay. Right, keep our spacecraft going all the way from pre-launch, you know, from the time when we, we lose ground power all the way till we get on orbit and we can unfurl solar arrays. Hmm. So there's four solar arrays on the service module of the uh, Orion. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Orion capsule, but it's got a crew module, which is the place where the crew stays the entire mission. Okay. And then we have a service module below it that contains our power, 
our extra oxygen, water, fuel, propulsion systems okay. that keep the vehicle going throughout the mission. Yeah. And then we jettison that service module right before re-entry, yeah. and then just the crew module comes home. Okay. And that service module, we call it the European service module, because it's being built by ESA and their prime contractor Airbus over in Europe. So That's it's right. an international program. Yeah. Part of that service module is four solar array wings. Okay. So these are four rectangular wings that um, unfold once we get on orbit, mm -hmm. about 19 meters in diameter, so they unfurl, they're pretty big. Um, 15,000 solar cells, individual solar cells on there, and they generate all the power for the spacecraft. Nice. And so as long as we're in a place where the solar rays are out and we have access to the sun, like we're not behind the moon, Mm -hmm. um, we're generating power and keeping our batteries topped off. Okay. Now, when we go behind the moon or we're in a shadow, then our batteries take over. And then, of course, when the batteries, when, uh, when we jettison the surface module to come home, now we're on battery power as well. Yeah. So those batteries have to be big enough to uh, get us back down through the atmosphere, land in the water, and then keep the crew safe for up to 24 hours after they're in the water. Okay. Does this, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, I, I remember seeing an animation about the EM-1, mm -hmm. and I think um, there was there was one more stage of the uh, SLS, I think, itself, that got, that did the translunar injection. Right. And then once it was on the way to the moon, that's when the the solar rays came out. Is that right? Is that how? We, it, we actually put them out ahead of time. Oh, you do? Okay. So we want to check out our spacecraft and make sure it's good and healthy before we do that burn to go to the moon. Oh, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> and yeah. then, of course, if for some reason the solar rays can't come out, if, if uh, the mechanism doesn't work, they don't unfurl right, if there's some problem, we need to still have enough battery power to do an abort. Hmm. even though we're in space, and get back down while we still have battery power. Okay. So while you're still within the vicinity of the Earth, you're checking out a lot of these systems because once that translunar injection burn goes, right. you want to make sure everything's working. You want to make sure it's working. <laughs> and then you have to be careful. Now yeah. you've put these big wings out, yeah. and you're going to fire a big rocket from SLS. We call it the ICPS, Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage. I think uh, I got that right. All right. Um, but that's a lot of thrust and a lot of force on the spacecraft. So we have to put the solar arrays in a safe attitude so that the forces of the rocket engine firing don't break them. Okay. Is there um, redundant systems there for power to make sure that we have enough to go in case something were to happen? Yeah. So the whole vehicle has to be at least one failure tolerant. Okay. Right. So we have four batteries on our vehicle. Four. All right. Right. But what if one of them failed? So we have to make sure that if any component, any one component on the vehicle were to fail, whether it be a flight computer, whether it be a battery, a solar array, that we can still complete the mission safely and get the crew back home. Okay. And that, uh, and I'm guessing the four solar arrays that are kind of pointing out, these four rectangular solar arrays, there's redundancies there too. For whatever reason, this one's not getting it, enough power, but you still have the other ones. If this one doesn't come out, uh, a wire breaks, um, the, um, the articulation mechanism that lets a point to the sun, if that's not working right, yeah. for whatever reason, if one of them fails, we can still finish the mission. So how are we working closely with the European Space Agency to oversee that everything's gonna work? We have enough redundancies that the crew module is gonna be able to talk to the European service module and, and stuff like that. It's really, you know, at the working level, it's just like working with another NASA Center or working with another contractor. Cool. Right? So 
we work with our Airbus counterparts, we work requirements, we work designs, we have design reviews, we do testing, that sort of thing. It's a little different contractual arrangement because they're our partners. Yeah. Right? We're not paying them to do this. It's a barter agreement between the countries. Mm -hmm. And so the Europeans are building the service module and they bring it over here and we integrate it together and make a whole spacecraft out of it. But really half that spacecraft is being built by the Europeans. Yeah. So the power, uh, I rem there, was, there was one podcast we did um, a while back. I'm trying to remember the episode number, I think 28. We talked with Jessica Voss about living yeah. in um, the Orion spacecraft for what could be sustained up to three weeks. It, right. The mission profiles would be slightly less than that, but the, the everything's going to work for three weeks. So is that what the power systems, the avionic systems, are those all meant for three weeks, or are they designed to be even longer thinking about, you know, gateway and missions beyond? Right, they were originally designed for 240 days. All right. Because back when we started the program, we had the whole concept of uh, you know, we didn't have necessarily a destination. So there's a concept of going to the moon with a lander and then letting the crew module stay in orbit around the moon while the whole crew went down to the surface. Ah. And so it may stay there for up to 240 day missions. So we really designed it with that in mind originally. The missions changed a number of times since then. Yeah. Um, but really, especially like for power, as long as you've got the sun, <laughs> solar rays will be charging the batteries, you'll be good there. We'll start getting limited on things like water and fuel as you start going longer. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to the avionic systems, the software, for a little bit. We talked about how radiation uh, affects that and how we have these redundancies to think about radiation. Uh, but what is actually going on in those systems? What is the avionic systems doing for the vehicle? The avionic systems, they run on a schedule. Okay. So 40 times a second, our software executes. Huh and it controls all the subsystems. It's doing communications, it's getting commands from the ground and sending data to the ground. It is controlling the pumps on the cooling system to keep ammonia flowing and keep the electronics cool. It's running the fans that, um, that keep the air circulating. Hmm. It is when we need to fire a thruster to keep our attitude it's, it's making those corrections. When it needs to move the solar arrays to point to the sun, it's doing that. It's keeping track of where you are, how fast you're going, you know, what rates are you generating on the vehicle, so where are you at today? It's, it's navigating, it's doing guidance for when do I need to do a burn to get there. So it, it really handles every subsystem on the vehicle at a periodic rate, just making sure they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's the backbone for all of these different things that make the whole vehicle work, make it all fly. Exactly. Wow. We have very, if you look at Apollo or even shuttle, you saw lots and lots of switches in the cockpit. Yeah, Lots yeah. of manual control. We have very, very few switches in Orion. Hmm. I forget the exact number, but it's, it's really only there in an emergency situation or when your computers aren't quite doing what you want them to do. Hmm. So like you have switches to be able to turn off the computers. You have switches to be able to um, deploy the parachutes in the event the computers don't work. Hmm. But in general, the switches are just there um, to control power and do some things in case the computer's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Everything else is computer controlled. Wow. All right, so when, when the crew is quote unquote flying Orion, mm -hmm. really most of the flying is being done by all the computers because they're executing at 
like you said before, on this timeline, on this schedule. Right. The computers can fly the entire mission um, autonomously, right? So we're flying EM-1, yeah. and that'll be without crews to check out all these systems, um, and it'll fly that entire mission autonomously with people in FOD watching it for mission control, yeah. um, seeing if any new commands need to be sent, any corrections to be made. Right. When the crew is there, they're sitting in front of a console that has a few switches I mentioned, right. and there's also three display units. And on those three display units, they can have up to six displays displayed at once, where they can get insight into what's happening on the vehicle. Huh. So I think of it as they're following along with the flight, they're following along with the software, they have a cursor control device, think of it as a mouse. Yeah. Um, it's actually by their left hand, where they can interact with those displays even during ascent. And so if, if they do need to take control, if they need to make an adjustment, they can do that. They also have hand controllers, where if they need to fly something or take over, they can do that as well. Hmm. But in general, everything they need to be able to do is done automated, and they can just interact with that automated software. Wow. Yeah, so there, when, when the crew is flying, flying the, right. the Orion, when it comes to the, the avionics software is doing most of it, and their job is to just make sure that the avionics is doing its job. That is talking to all the right subsystems, that the vehicle is flying normally, and they are trained, I'm, I'm guessing, they're trained specifically for watching to make sure if something does go wrong, they know what to do. They know what to do, exactly. Yeah. So they know their contingency procedures. We even have a lot of the normal procedures they'll have to execute are all electronic now. Hmm. So they'll actually just come up on the display and I'll oh. tell them, do this step, and it'll actually bring up the screen where they can do that step. Yeah. Right, and then the crew just says, okay, yeah, I did what it was supposed to do. I like the values everywhere else. Enter, go ahead and do it. Okay. Right. So it, it tries to step them through. So rather than flying volumes and volumes of paper manuals that are heavy and take up airy inside the crew capsule, we do that electronically. All right. So that's, I guess, that component will be tested on EM2 when we finally put crew on to make sure that, well, we'll test the vehicle first and make sure that it's doing its thing without the crew, but then right. the crew will be able to understand this whole process and make decisions if something were to go wrong. Right. Yeah, we're not flying any displays or hand controllers on EM1. Right. So that's being done in the labs, but they're already coming up with all those displays. And actually, a, a kind of interesting thing that's happening on Orion is the crew is actually developing the displays. Cool. So rather than the Orion program, the users, the people that need to interact with it, um, there's a rapid prototyping lab in Building 4 South, yeah. and actually the crew is leading that development effort for what they want the crew's displays to look like, how they want to interact with them, um, and making sure it's going to work right. And then once the crew gets each display correct, then they turn that over to Lockheed Martin to go turn into flight software. But they get it all right first and tested first. Yeah, yeah. But then, yeah, they they actually put the right stuff, the the procedures, the processes that the crew understands and recommends into the flight. Right. Okay. And then they even go so far as to run crew evaluations. Oh. Well, they'll we'll have a mock cockpit and they'll run crew members, various crew members, through all the different procedures, all the different displays, get their comments, get their feedback. And that way, before we spend a lot of money building flight software, mm -hmm. we already know we have a product that's going to be good. Yeah. Versus a bunch of engineers and people thinking what the crew might like, <laughs> implementing it in flight software, and when the crew sees it and says, well, I'd like something different, 
we would turn around and say, well, that's too expensive to change. Uh, so we're kind of turning that process around to make it more affordable by having the crew give their input first. Okay. And get it right before we develop it. There you go. And then, well, first, like, like I said before, we have to test it uncrewed first on EM1 before they right. actually interact with it. But um, thinking along those lines, you know, we're in the process of actually building the hardware for that mission. Yes. Where are we in the avionics and power world? Uh, how far are we along? How many steps do we have until until we have all the components ready and integrated into that vehicle? So we've just finished getting all the components in and tested for EM1. Okay. Right, so the vehicle from an avionics perspective, just a couple little units left to, uh, to install in the vehicle. And our intention is to power on the spacecraft for EM2 in September of 2020. All right. So that's when we have all our components built, delivered to the Cape, installed in the vehicle, and ready to turn it on, we call it initial power on, and make the vehicle start acting like a spacecraft. <laughs> and so we're actually already started building some components. Some of the ones that take the longest amount of time to build and test, we've already started on. Cool. And then we just have a whole schedule over the next couple years to turn them on as, as they need to be turned on so they're ready. There you go. Is that being done here at the Johnson Space Center? The Orion Program Office is here, mm. but our main contractor, Lockheed Martin, is yeah. in Denver. I see. And then really, it's being built across the country. Uh -huh. I think it's every state, including Puerto Rico, has a Orion business, and avionics is spread really in many locations. Oh, really? Honeywell, okay. UTAS, Ball, GD, Seeker, and I'm sure I'm missing many others. <laughs> Vendors, uh, Harris, across the country are building the components, testing them, and then delivering it to integration labs in Denver to test them out as yeah. a system, and then to KSC to test them out on the vehicle. All right. Yeah, so this is a massive effort. Definitely a lot of work to be done over these next it's few years. It's a massive effort. Yeah. Uh, it takes the whole country to build it. And then when you add in the Europeans, yeah. um, I think there's there's quite a few countries in Europe as well participating when they're building that service module. Awesome. Are you going to see the whole thing uh, through? Are, is that your your ambition? To that, is, that is definitely my ambition. <laughs> um, definitely want to see people fly again. Yeah. Right? So... It at least want to continue this sort of job through EM2. Right. And then we have lots of new challenges after EM2 even. Yeah. Because after that, then we want to get into, we call it a production mode, where we can start building spacecraft a little bit quicker once we've tested them out. And that'll start freeing up resources to build that gateway you were talking about earlier. Right. There you go. A lot of work to be done, but it sounds like there's so much, so much to this. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and describing this wonderful world of what I thought was radiation shielding. I imagined just sort of like, you know, one of those movie shields, but really it's it's the redundancies and there's a lot of logic to it yeah. on how to, everything works. So I appreciate you coming on and describing that for us. It's today. my pleasure. It's, it's fun to come do things like this and <laughs> get away from the normal drudgery of, you know, daily business management and talk about what we're really trying to accomplish. Wonderful. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Matt Lemke about radiation shielding and how really redundant systems make the whole thing work. Uh, if you want to learn more about radiation, you can check out episodes 57 and 64. Uh, you can check out many, one of our many episodes about Orion. We have a nice overview on episode 17. We talk about how the crew will operate on, on uh, missions up to three weeks for episode 28. And then we take a ride inside the capsule for episode 35. Episodes 67 and 68 are ones we did recently on Orion's heat shield and navigation systems. Uh, you can go to nasa.gov slash Orion to learn more about the vehicle itself. Uh, we've been going some of, of, through some of these topics based on an article called The Top 5 Technologies Needed for a Spacecraft to Survive Deep Space. Really interesting stuff. Gives a nice overview of some of the stuff that we are talking about in depth here on Houston. We have a podcast. On social media, we are on uh, the International Space Station, uh, Orion, and NASA Johnson Space Center accounts. Uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Make sure to mention Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on September 5th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perriman, Bill Stafford, Pat Ryan, Laura Bouchon, and Rachel Kraft. Thanks again to Mr. Matt Lemke for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.